What I want you to get from the text we're going to look at in a moment is that missions then and I believe now can be and should be driven by a glorious vision of God. So the song we just sang is very, very fitting. God is bigger than the air we breathe. He's bigger than the world will leave. There's going to be a day when he triumphs totally and every knee will bow and say, glorious. They won't all say, my glorious. They will say, glorious. And those who are his will say, my glorious. And our, our job, our, our passion is to so display him in the world that more and more people will meet him with my glorious and not glorious horrible. And then ask for the rocks to fall on their heads and crush them, lest the wrath of the Lamb have full sway. So that driving force was there in the second generation of modern missions, the 1800s of Thomas Chalmers students. But it was also there in the first generation. And you'd, you'd know who the founder of that is. William Carey is usually called the father of modern missions, not the beginning of missions, but the father of what is modern missions. And I want to give you a flavor of this vision of God that Carey had. Carey left England in uh, uh, 1793, and four years later, he was giving a sermon among a very hostile group of Brahmins, and it was on Acts 14, 16, and 17, 30, where he was making the point God formerly allowed all men everywhere to go their own way, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And, and one Brahmin stood up and objected and said, I think God should repent for not sending the gospel sooner, if that's true, instead of letting them all go their own way. Now, what would you, what would, this is asked to missionaries all the time. What about my grandfather? We're the first generation to hear the gospel. What about our grandparents and our great-grandparents? What would you what would you have said if you were Carrie? I'm going to read you what he said, and it blows my mind away. Here's Carrie's response. To this I added, suppose a kingdom had been long overrun by the enemies of its true king, and he, though possessed with sufficient power to conquer them, should suffer them to prevail and establish themselves as much as they could desire, would not the valor and wisdom of that king be far more conspicuous in exterminating them than it would have been if he had opposed them at first and prevented their entering the country? Thus, by the diffusion of gospel light, the wisdom, power, and grace of God will be more conspicuous in overcoming such deep-rooted idolatries and in destroying all that darkness and vice which have so universally prevailed in this country than they would have been if all had not been suffered to walk in their own ways for so many ages past. <laughs> That's a very unusual answer. He didn't say, the reason we haven't been able to get the gospel here is because I'm dealing with a disobedient church all the time and I don't know what to do about it. That wasn't his answer. That kind of helpless God 
doesn't keep people on the mission field. It doesn't carry the day in the face of hard objections and insufferable opposition. There is something greater. It drove this first wave of missionaries and second wave, and it drives many, many missionaries today. And I, I want to show you from a text. If you have a Bible, I don't know in the dark out there if you can see a Bible, but if you don't, just listen to me. But if you have a Bible and you want to look at John 10, that's where I'm going to go. So I hope you have good ears or good eyes. I'm going to go to John 10, and the goal here is to take one verse, put it in context with about six textual observations, and then illustrate it and how it's worked out in history, and then close with why this text is so amazingly powerful in encouraging missionaries even today. And it's all designed to show you the kind of God and the kind of theology that was driving William Carey, Thomas Chalmers, and all those generations, including people like David Livingston, Edna R. M. Judson, Alexander Duff, John Patton. These are all my heroes that I like to write little, little biographies about because they so fill me with a, a desire. I, every time we do our World Missions Week at Bethlehem, uh, I have to stop and say, God, now, do you want me here? Do you still want me here? I've been here at this church now 29 years. Do you want me here? I, I might have a few years left. Should I now leave and go there? And I have to deal with this. Just I hope, I hope you're dealing with it while you're here at Crown. Where, Lord, shall I spend my life? I only have a teeny little life to live. It's a vapor's breath. I want it to count maximally. I don't want to waste it and squander it on the American dream. I want to be where you want me to be, maximally useful and I think what carries the day and gets people where God wants them and keeps them there in hard times is a theology that will emerge from John 10. So we're going to, the verse I'm focusing on is verse 16. And then I'm going to put it in context. I, this is Jesus talking, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will heed my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This is a great, the great missionary text in the Gospel of John. There are others. This is the most important in the Gospel of John, historically in its effect on the global task. So let me put that verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold in the context of the, of the 10th chapter with six observations. Number one, verse 11 I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. Just clarifying who the shepherd is. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Second observation. Some sheep are Christ's and some are not. You don't have sheep and goats in this chapter. You have two kinds of sheep. So just each text as it comes. Verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out, he goes before them. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So not all the flock of Israel that the Messiah has come to are his own. He knows his own. And when he calls, they come. 
So third observation. The reason that some sheep belong to Jesus and some didn't is most fundamentally that his father has made them his own and given them to the son. Verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Or chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me, to those you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. So the reason he has sheep, these are mine, my sheep, is because the father has them and he gives them to the son. Says it again in chapter 6, verse 37. All that the father gives me, will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. Fourth observation. Jesus knows those who are his, and he calls them by name, and when he calls them, they know the shepherd's voice, and they follow. Verse 3 again. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. When he has brought them out, when he, had brought, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So when the shepherd speaks to this flock of Israel, those who are his know his voice and they follow. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me now. Here's, here's the controversial, shocking thing in this context. The reason that some are his own sheep and some are not is not because they hear his voice and come and become his own sheep. It's the other way around. They are able to hear his voice and come because they are already his sheep. Let me read you the key verse. This is verse 26. Remember when I first saw this, it just kind of made me real. You do not believe, Jesus said to them. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. That's the reason you're not believing. My father has his own. He gives them to me. And the reason they believe and come is because they are mine. They hear my voice. They recognize the voice. The others, they don't like the voice. They spurn the voice. They are not mine. Fifth observation. That's not all he does for his sheep. He dies for them. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me as the father knows me. I know the father and I lay down my life for my sheep. This is very, very similar to the way Paul talked in Romans 8. See if this doesn't ring up Romans 8.30 to you. So the father has made some his own. 
He gives them to the Son. Those whom He has given to the Son, the Son calls. And those whom the Son calls, come. They believe. And He lays down His life for them. Final observation, contextually. The basis of this, on the basis of this sacrifice, He gives them eternal life. So verse 27, My sheep hear My voice. I know them. They follow Me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the sequence we have now complete is is this. The Father has some who are his own. He has made them his own. He gives them to the Son. Those whom he has given to the Son, the Son calls by name. Those whom he has called, he lays down his life for. Those whom he dies for, he gives eternal life, and nobody can take them out of the Father's hand. That is an amazing salvation. It blew William Carey away. It blew Thomas Chalmers away. They passed it on from generation to generation. And this magnificent salvation over this totally authoritative Christ held them. On the mission field, William Carey, 40 years without a single furlough. And right at this point in the text comes a huge danger, which some of you are thinking right now. Wondering, you going to talk about that? The danger at this point in this text is that the devil or my own heart, sinful as it is, will twist this truth that I've just articulated into, well, if God has his own and he gives them to the Son and the Son speaks as the shepherd and they come and they're kept and died for and preserved forever then that's, that's a nice little private, comfortable, in-house group, which I'm glad I'm part of. Too bad others aren't part of it. And just as that danger arises, it's got a name theologically. You know what the name of it is? Hyper-Calvinism. Just at that point when Calvinism is distorted into hyper-Calvinism, verse 16 lands. Just, just when the, the, the Jewish disciples of Jesus start to think, it's us, it's us, isn't it so great to be chosen? Isn't this so great to have our, our circle here of salvation? He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I will bring them also. And just when American Puritans in the 1600s were settling into their chosen status in New England, God spoke to John Eliot, I have other sheep that are not of this Puritan fold, Algonquin Indians who have words that are 26 letters long and at 42 years old, I want you to learn their language and plant churches among them. David Brainerd, a hundred years later, just when the same thing was happening, God says to David Brainerd, I have other sheep that are not of this congregational 
fold in New England among the Susquehanna. I want you to go out there until you're dead at age 29, pour out your life to bring them the gospel. And just when the particular Baptists of England were frozen in their hyper-Calvinistic seclusion, God says to William Carey, one of them, I have other people, other sheep that are not of this English fold. They're in India, and I want you to go and stay there till you're dead to bring my gospel to the unreached peoples in India. And just when the mission agencies in the 20th century or in the 19th century were becoming very content that all the coastal peoples in Africa and China, Asia, had been reached. God speaks to the likes of Hudson Taylor and says, I have other sheep that aren't on this coastal fold. They're inland. And the China Inland Mission is born, and he speaks to David Livingston, not just along the coast of Africa, but inland. And David Livingston gives his life to forge trails inland where there are peoples, there are sheep. I have other sheep in there. Go get those other sheep. And just when Western Christendom, this is just very recent history, was celebrating that we're in every country around the globe, God comes to a man like Cameron Townsend, the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, and says, yes, you're in every country, but I have people among thousands of people groups who have languages that don't have a scrap of Scripture in them. The fact that we're in every country doesn't mean anything to me, God would say, if I'm not in every people group, in every language and tribe and nation. So you go, you, you create a mission, and, and my, oh my, what God has done in the last 50 years in missions to bring the awareness alive concerning the reality of people's around the world that don't yet have the gospel. All of that on the basis of John 10, 16. I have other people that are not of this fold. I want you to go get them. Now, what I want to do in in the time that remains is to show why this verse 16 does what it does. Why is it so empowering? Why is it so encouraging to press on in the global purposes of reaching the unreached peoples of the world with the gospel of Christ crucified and risen, the only way to heaven? I have four reasons. Number one, Christ has a people besides those already converted. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, in the original context, that was, here's our Jewish, here's our Jewish church. Messiah has come. He's called a people. They've come to him. And here we are in Jerusalem. And they had to be persecuted to get them, to get them out. Today, the implication is, I have a people at Crown College. I have a people at Bethlehem Baptist Church. And I have other people that are not of this fold. And it's pressing on us always. There are others. There are others. I have other people that are not of this fold. Now, just here's the implication. This is the doctrine of election. I haven't used the word till right now, but that's what I've been describing. God has a people that are out there. They're His. They're His. And they're not here. 
I went to Urbana 67 with my fiance when I was 20 years old and was blown away by a lot of things that are stamping me to this day. The expositions of John Stott are ringing in my ears from 1 Timothy from 40 years ago. And Oh, yes, I want to handle the Bible like that. But here's another story. John Alexander, who was then president of InterVarsity, was talking and he said, I went out years ago to Pakistan saying, if I believed in predestination, I'd never be a missionary. There have always been people who said the doctrine of election and the, do the biblical doctrine, these are biblical words, election and predestination, are enemies of missions. And he said, I believe that. I would have never gone to the mission field. And then he, and then he looked at these 9,000 young people and he said, today, after about 20 years of trying to save the impossibly, to save. I say, if I didn't believe in it, I couldn't go. Now, that's what William Carey thought. That's what Thomas Chalmers thought. If I didn't believe that God was powerful enough, sovereign enough to break through Muslim peoples, Hindu peoples, Buddhist peoples, impossible peoples, save them. Not just Hope they'll get saved through an invitation, but move by the power of the Holy Spirit and open the eyes of the heart and draw them when they hear the voice of the shepherd. If I didn't believe that, he said, I could never, ever go. Now, his testimony doesn't matter at all. Paul's testimony matters a lot. Do you remember what Paul said about this? He went to, he went to Corinth and he was very downcast. If you remember this, it's told in Acts 18, 9 and 10, very discouraged. And God comes to him at night in a vision, Jesus does, to, to encourage him. And listen to what Jesus says. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Now, get to let yourself picture this. Corinth has zero Christians in it. This, this place is as pagan as any city on the planet you could go to today. It is as, is as dissolute and as hard-hearted and as disinterested in spiritual things as any place you could go. With many false religions holding people in demonic sway. And Paul is there with his little band and, and discouraged. Looking at these mammoth forces that he's up against all alone with his little teeny. And this is what Jesus says. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision... Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man shall attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Other sheep I have. I have sheep out there. You sound the voice, they will hear it. Go, get those sheep. That's the first observation that encourages us. That when he says, I have other sheep, it means they're really out there. They're really out there among all the peoples of the world. Second observation. These other sheep are scattered all over the world. I have other sheep. Listen to John 11. Remember this text where Caiaphas, the high priest, unwittingly spoke a word of prophecy concerning the death of 
Jesus that they wanted to put to death and why he would be put to death. And John interprets what he didn't even know he was saying. This is John eleven fifty one and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only, other people, not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. So now he shifted language on us. I have other sheep. I have a people in this city. And now he says, I'm dying to gather into one the children of God. In other words, God has a people. That was the point of those expositional comments. God has his own. He gives them to the son. The son speaks. They hear his voice. He comes. I've got a people out there. I'm dying for them. They will come. That's the second observation. Simply amazing that they are so scattered and they are his own. How, how scattered are they in John's thinking? Well, John wrote Revelation in Revelation 5.9, you know, one of the most important missionary passages in the Bible. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's how widespread the children of God are. That's how widespread the sheep are. That's how widespread the people are. That's how widespread the ransomed are. Every people, tongue, tribe and nation. You will not go to any single people group on the planet where God doesn't have a people. Amazingly powerful for these early missionaries. Third observation, the Lord has committed himself to bring them home. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Now, here a little voice could creep in, which it did. Little little hyper-Calvinistic voice says, oh, well, if he's going to bring them, let him bring them. We, we, we're not needed. He said, I'm going to bring them. He said, I will build my church. So we'll just watch him do it from England and we'll watch India. Watch God do it. That's demonic. It is unbiblical. It is wicked. Jesus said in John 17, 18, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. John 20. Or, I do not pray for these, this is John 17, 20. I do not pray for these only, but for those who will believe on me through their word. Did you get that? Here's Jesus praying for this band of disciples. He says to his father, I do not pray for these only. I pray for those 2,000 years from now, or 100, or 3,000. I pray for those who will believe on me through their word, your word. Any of you who says, 
Oh, God is sovereign. Piper said God is sovereign. He has a people. He, he triumphantly brings them to himself. Therefore, we can go join the American dream, buy a house, live in the suburbs, get three cars and have kids and pick a nice private school and get rich and die. You know that would not be an accurate representation. I said, Jesus prayed for the nations that would believe on him through your word. And right now, right now, God's calling some of you through your word. Little insignificant you, little small dream you, or little big dream insignificant you. Can't tell you how insecure I felt when I was sitting where you were sitting at Wheaton College. 1964 to 1968. I couldn't talk in front of a group. I had bad complexion. I felt so avoided by girls. I, 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 just, I just was, I was a, a psychological basket case. I just want to encourage you so much. I don't care how small you feel, how insignificant you feel, how homely you feel, how unpopular you feel, this is a great God. And that makes all the difference. Number four, the final point. Which implies that they will come. When you speak, so here's the way it works. Um, you might think, okay, I understand that he, God, has a, God has a people. They are the sheep that are not of this fold. When the shepherd speaks the voice, the sheep are, by virtue of their own work of God in their hearts, able to discern. That's true. That's true. And they follow the shepherd. I get that. But what about me? I don't, I'm not the shepherd. And here's where this book is so essential. When you undertake to go into the world and let the shepherd and his word, this is his word, speak through this fallible mouth. This infallible shepherd word comes out of this fallible mouth. The same dynamic is true today that was true 2,000 years ago. That God Almighty grants ears to hear and they will hear his voice. I see it happen every Sunday. I watch, I watch the sea divide. And, and here's a group that are hearing. And here's a group that are bored stiff with what I'm saying. I said, what's the difference, Lord? Why do one have ears to hear and the others don't have ears to hear? And the text says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will heed my voice. This filled Thomas Chalmers and his six, Andrews six, and William Carey and David Livingston and Alexander Duff and John Patton and Ednar and Judson. This truth filled these men with massive confidence so that they could go to a Burma or an India or an Africa with hordes of unbelieving people in centuries of bondage to the powerful devil and say, they're going to believe. 
when I speak the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to gather a people. I will build my church, but I will not build it without you. Oh, Crown, Crown College, what God could do, what God could do. Indeed, I believe what God will do as you, all right, I just want to be used. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and then dismiss you. Father in heaven, what an honor for me to take your word upon my lips. What an honor for me to stand in the place of Jesus and speak some of his words like John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this crown fold, not of this uh, CMA fold, not of this American fold, not of this Western fold. I have other sheep and I will bring them. They will heed my voice through your voice. Father, I pray that these students and this faculty, this administration will be profoundly gripped with the majesty of your sovereign grace and your readiness and willingness to save people among all the peoples of the world. Oh, take us, Lord. Take people from my church and take people from this school, I pray, and plant us among the hungry places of the world. Indeed, the places that don't want us to come in order that Christ might be exalted. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you courage and and boldness and freedom and understanding and a, a big view of a majestic God and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.